Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. And I'm your host, Lulu Gabu. Joining me are Anne Musa, Wisani Matebula and Musibudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, aid agencies warn of looming humanitarian crisis in South Sudan. UN investigators arrive in the Central African Republic and Kenyan president orders parastatal chiefs to take a 20% pay cut. In economics, former BSG resources advisor pleads guilty in connection with Guinea mine scandal. And in sports news, Athletics South Africa proud of their team's performance in Poland. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. Today will most likely be another emotional session for Oscar Pistorius with more graphic medical evidence of gunshots that caused his girlfriend, River Stiencombe's death. Pistorius became physically ill during forensic pathologist Gert Seyman's testimony yesterday in the High Court in South Africa's capital, Pretoria. Pistorius has pleaded not guilty to murder after he shot and killed Stiencombe on Valentine's Day last year. Leila Machnes reports. Forensic pathologist Gert Simon will be cross-examined by Pistorius's advocate, Barry Rue, for most of today. Simon testified that Steenkamp had three gunshot wounds to her body and that either of the wounds would have caused her death. He described in graphic detail the wound to Steenkamp's head as well as her hip and arm. Simon told the court the bullet that they retrieved from Steenkamp's skull was designed to cause major tissue damage. The trial continues. Leaders of a United Nations investigation of human rights abuses in Central African Republic will be looking into reports of genocide. The chair of the investigation, Bernard Munar, says he's concerned that hate propaganda used by both Christians and Muslims in the conflict will fuel more violence. Violence continues unabated as mostly Christian vigilantes take re- revenge. Munar says hate propaganda on the ground is reminiscent of his time working in Rwanda, where a 1994 genocide left an estimated 800,000 people dead. 
Flooding has struck parts of southern Mozambique, prompting authorities to call on people to evacuate low-lying areas. According to authorities, more than 6,000 people living in the Nkomati Basin are at risk from flooding. More rain is expected in southern Mozambique and neighboring countries in the coming days, leading to fears of further flooding. In South Africa, the Department of Cooperative Governance says the National Defence Force is on standby to assist in flood-ridden areas. It says the National Disaster Management Centre has advised provincial and municipal disaster management centres in in provinces affected by recent floods to begin the necessary response preparedness. The South African Weather Service has warned of more rain in provinces such as Gauteng, Northwest, Limpopo, Mpumalanga and KwaZulu-Natal. Kirat Lala reports. Four people have reportedly died from drowning, 12 people were rescued, one person is still missing and scores have been displaced. Other incidents range from damaged housing infrastructure, washed away roads and bridges. The National Disaster Management Centre has requested the SANDF to be on standby with helicopters to rescue flood victims. The centre says it is on high alert to help with search and rescue operations as well as providing emergency relief funding should the need arise. There's still no trace of the missing Malaysia Airlines plane a day after authorities questioned travel agents about two men who boarded the flight with stolen passports. Three days after the plane with 239 people on board vanished from radar screens between Malaysia and Vietnam, the search effort by at least 34 aircraft and 40 ships has been widened to a 185-kilometer radius from the point the plane was last detected. And that's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, today's question of the day, the testimony in Oscar Pistorius' trial by Professor Gert Simon, who performed the autopsy on Reva Stenkamp's body, was so graphic that it was not broadcast or reported live on social media by journalists under an order from Judge Togozile Masipa. Our question this morning is, do you think the judge was right by ordering journalists not to broadcast live the autopsy report? Email us on infochannelafrica.org, send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Channel Africa 1. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. In our top story for this hour, aid agencies working in South Sudan, a warning of a possible humanitarian crisis if fighting in the country prevents people from moving to their farms and planting crops over the next three months when the rainy season starts. More than 700,000 people have been displaced inside the country, while thousands more have fled to neighboring Uganda, Ethiopia and Kenya. Our East African reporter Sarah Kimani visited a camp for displaced persons on the border of South Sudan and Uganda and filed this report. It takes a bumpy ride through the forest for several kilometers without anybody in sight. Then 
white tarpaulins, and sounds of women gathering round sacks of food rations welcome you to Molejo Camp for internally displaced persons on the border with Uganda. It is here that 28,000 people are sheltered from months of fighting in the country. Here, women and sacks and jerrycans receive just enough to see another day. Hailit Gebrehewit is the emergency coordinator for Plan International, one of the aid agencies working in the region. So far we have covered like uh, uh, 25,000. These are the lucky ones to have survived the fighting that erupted in December last year between troops back in President Salva Kiel and his former deputy, Dr. Riek Machar. Memories of that war still fresh in the mind of John Ateum. Uh, who was killing uh, Ethan Noer, and from there when we were being shooting, we lost uh, about 13 young children. The conditions here are deplorable. No water, no sanitation or health facilities. The taplins are not enough. Many sleep out in the cold at night, and food is fast running out. But here, they find safety in numbers. Yeah, the condition is really tough. I mean, as you can see, especially here, the weather is not friendly and they are far from services and so on. And uh, they got some few shelters. Uh, uh, I, we thought when we came here, we feel safe even though we are in the bush. We are safe here. And what we know so far, this war we have seen, since we were been running, we thought after three years, maybe there will be peace in uh, South Sudan. But at the moment, we don't think of peace. Yeah. Mm. So he, he plans to stay here forever? We are going to remain here, but uh, we have some condition which are facing us here. There is no medical uh, here. We are suffering because the, the government of Eastern Equatorial said there is no services that should be given to us. And you have seen these children. Our worry is uh, rain is coming, and when it is rain here, it will be difficult for them. Uh, there is no enough food. Some of them are not being registered. He himself is not registered since he came. So he has no lease now among these people. He has no food. So he's begging from those who have been registered. So this uh, is uh, worried. Probably the reason why three months since the fighting began and more than two months since the signing of the cessation of hostilities agreement, more people are coming to the camp. During our visit at Molejo, at least three families arrived at the camp. Madin Deng says he has heard that the South Sudan government is readying itself to recapture Malakal town, one of the towns still in the hands of the rebels. He has opted to run together with his pregnant wife and seven children. People, many people have been dying, have been killed by the last attack by the Nair community. And even people from Paloch also ran out. So this is why we decided to move when we reached to Juba. We we'll also see the fear of what happened uh, after three days in Juba. 
So we say if we, we, we stay here, it might happen again. So we are looking at the safe area. This is why we decide to come to the border here. These families, the latest to join the growing statistics of thousands of displaced persons. Aid agencies are worried that South Sudan faces a humanitarian crisis. While more than 28,000 people are sheltered at the camp, it is clear that women and children make up almost 90% of those sheltered here. Why? We ask Abraham did. So that is the issue. You have seen some few men here, but most of the men they have gone. All these women, these are for the, the wife of the soldiers. But all the soldiers have remained here, there. So we, the few who have come here, we came here helping them for the, this small period of time, but we will go back. The world's youngest nation clearly in a war with itself. On the border with Uganda and South Sudan, I am Sarah Kimani. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The warning signs of a possible genocide in the Central African Republic, including hate speech, are increasingly evident, according to a senior United Nations official. Adama Dieng, the UN Secretary General Special Advisor on the Prevention of Genocide, says the international community has to act now to stop it happening. Yesterday, a commission of UN-mandated experts arrived in the country to investigate human rights violations. Patrick Maigua asked Adama Dieng what needs to be done to ensure that the Central African Republic does not descend into genocide. The international community, when we talk about preventing genocide, we must focus our efforts on early prevention and not only on responding to situations where the risk of genocide is clear and imminent, as is the case today in Central African Republic, or where atrocity crimes are ongoing, such as in Syria. We must, uh, therefore, act well before we reach uh, levels of violence. Uh, when we see the warning signs, uh, the signposts along the path uh, to genocide, we are so well informed today about uh, what is happening in the world. We cannot ever say that we did not know. We cannot ever say that we were not warned about events. We need to take the prevention a part of preventing genocide seriously. And what would you say are the warning signs along the way to, you know, before genocide actually takes place? Well, there are so many, and I will simply highlight one of them, which is uh, the hate speech, the propaganda speech. When uh, people start being named after animals' name. We saw it uh, in Rwanda when uh, the Tutsis were uh, named Kankrala or Rat. And it is my sincere hope that in the case of Central African Republic, the international community, the member state will do justice to the call made by the Secretary General to get really as soon as possible a peacekeeping operation. We cannot continue to wait when people are being killed killed simply because of their religious background. You've said there are warning signs along the way, but then how would you characterize the situation in the Central African Republic? 
the special advisor doesn't have the mandate to make a legal determination of genocide. However, I can say it loudly that unless serious and quick action are taken to strengthen the presence of those troops which are on the ground, I'm afraid we will end by having a genocide. So therefore, it is still possible to prevent uh, this crime to happen. What else can be done other than just uh, bringing in the international force? What can, the, for example, the interim government do to prevent the situation from uh, tipping over? It is important that, of course, security be put in place, but also accountability. The perpetrators of these acts, even the ordinary people, should be arrested and brought before a judge. And it is also critical that dialogue and reconciliation start so that people uh, really start a healing process. The Heart and Stroke Foundation of South Africa is this coming Thursday hosting the 2014 SALT Summit. This high-level summit is expected to bring together global and national health experts, government, industry and key stakeholders to address the complexities of changing behavior to reduce SALT intake. To discuss this further, we're now joined on the line by Dr. Vash Mungal Singh, CEO of Heart and Stroke Foundation of South Africa. Good morning, Doc, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Now, Dr. Vash, what are some of the dangers associated with excessive use of salt? Well, we consume too much of salt, and the health uh, risk that too much of salt poses includes things like um, high blood pressure or hypertension. It even puts you at risk for developing stomach cancers and um, also is very bad for your kidneys. In fact, we've seen too many young people ending up with um, with end-stage kidney failure. Now, South Africa's Health Minister, Dr. Aaron Mutsualedi, signed um, a legislation in March last year to make salt reduction in the food industry mandatory. Has this helped to reduce the amount of salt South Africans consume? Well, we will start seeing the effect of this legislation in time. In fact, the deadlines haven't come um, into being as yet. And the food industry is very busy at the moment reformulating their foods to produce foods that have lower salt content, but to do it very slowly so that it doesn't affect the taste. So no, South Africa hasn't done too much yet. The starting point has been in signing the legislation, but now the food industry has, um, has uh, bought into it, and we as the foundation, as the Heart and Stroke Foundation, will run a public education and awareness program. And in fact, that is the reason, one of the reasons for holding the summit on Thursday, where we bring together the experts to um, together uh, create a common agenda and decide how we will, we will reach the public with our message. Now, with regards to um, the reduction of, of uh, any, the reduction, uh, salt reduction program, what is crucial in terms of what is required um, for the program, for the program to be a success? Well, 
you know, we need to work together. Collaboration is critical. No single entity or sector is going to be able to do it on its own. And for the reason that, you know, the foods that you and I buy, we have very little control over. So the food industry plays a huge role um, in that they need to start formulating or creating food products that have lower salt content but are still as flavorful. So they have to come to the party. Of course, government is very important here as well. We need the support of government. They've started with legislation, but more needs to be done at government level. We need to start looking at our labels, our food labels, to make it easier for people to choose the, the better food product or the healthier option. We then need to, to look at media um, and look at how media can start taking our message out into the public space as well. So there's various players that are, it's very important we all work together and have this common message so that we're able to reach more people. Now, Doctor, what sort of lessons can South Africa learn from countries like France, um, the UK, Finland, with, uh, with uh, results having dropped in salt levels in some of their processed foods? What, what can we do as South Africa or the African continent um, um, to learn from these countries that have had successes? Well, I think the starting point is for us to, um, to take hope. And the reason I say that is when I speak to people about reducing their salt intake, the first thing they talk about is, but my food is going to be tasteless. You know, this is what adds flavor to my food. And the the point is, though, that the salty taste is a learned taste, and it can be unlearned as well. You can train your palate not to, in fact, enjoy food that is too salty. So what we've seen in these countries that you mentioned is they have successfully reduced their uh, salt intake purely by retraining their, their pellets. And so it is doable, it is achievable. That's the, the one thing. The second is we've learned that it has been a collaborative attempt where industry and government worked together, together with NGOs, to create that um, public awareness as well as provide people with better options, to buy better options, healthier options. And so, again, it's that collaboration that I've been talking about. And I guess the last thing, the last point that I would like to make on that um, particular question is that this is possible and we can see that there is a significant reduction in the disease burden, in the number of heart disease or heart attacks and strokes in those countries. And so, yes, we know it plays a huge role, and we know what we should be doing. It's just a matter of coming together and doing it. Now, Dr. Mungal Singh, how successful do you expect Thursday's meeting to be um, with regards to spreading the word about the harmful effects of having too much salt or taking too much salt? Well, you know, that will be difficult to say, but looking at the delegates, um, we've got over 200 registrations already. And, you know, that is quite a huge forum. And this is a high-level meeting. If one looks at the speakers, the caliber of the speakers, we even have um, Dr. Gwen Ramachoba, who is the Deputy Minister of Health, who is going to be doing the opening address as well. So they are take, government is taking it seriously. 
Um, and we've got all sectors represented as well. You know, when I say all sectors from the catering industry, the food industry, medical insurance, um, healthcare professionals, the nursing association, media. So we've got a well-represented group of people coming together. And I'm hoping that by bringing the knowledge, the skills, the expertise of these individuals, we will be able to map out the way forward in order to reach people and to help them change their behaviors. Are there any good, um, uh, what is the word, um, good things that one can get from salt? Well, you see, we all need salt. The good thing about salt is that we all need salt for our normal physiological processes. So salt in itself is not a bad thing. But it's the fact that as we adopt the westernized lifestyle and westernized diet, we started having too much of it. And so salt in itself, I, I don't want to create that perception that salt is bad. Salt is good. You do need some salt for good health, but not too much of it. Of course, in terms of the role that salt plays um, in our lives, you know, most people would be familiar with the fact that throwing salt over the shoulder keeps away the evil or it's for good luck. And so there's a a lot of um, our perceptions around salt and good health um, keeps the evil away. It also keeps um, our food uh, fresher for longer. So, you know, there's a lot of the scientific and laboratory-based type of uh, good things about salt as well. So in its entirety, salt is not bad. It's just about how we use it. Doc, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. That was Dr. Vash Mungal Singh, CEO of the Heart and Stroke Foundation of South Africa. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Canadian researchers have secured new funding to help develop a device that can turn any smartphone into a tool that can monitor blood oxygen levels. This innovation is expected to help prevent maternal and child deaths around the world. Called the phone oximeter, the device consists of a software application and a non-invasive light sensor that attaches to a patient's finger and can be installed on any smartphone, tablet or laptop computer. For more insight on this, Elizabeth Mapari spoke to Dr. Mark Ansamino, a researcher at the University of British Columbia in Canada. We have been working on this particular device for about two and a half years now. Anesthesiologist and a pulse oximeter is something that I would use every day in the operating room when I provide anesthesia to patients. What makes this device unique, Doctor, from other mobile-enabled pulse oximeters? Well, this device was really the first cell phone pulse oximeter, but there have been a couple of other devices that have been developed, but this is specifically designed to be low-cost. And the reason it can be low-cost is because all of the processing for this oximeter is done on the phone. The only thing we need for the oximeter to work is a sensor that we plug into the audio jack of the phone. How accurate is it also when it comes to operating it? Is it an easy process to grasp? 
So this would be as accurate as any other commercial pulse oximeter, and we are busy conducting clinical trials on this at the moment, and a lot of effort has gone into calibrating the device. The ease of use, obviously this is designed, unlike a usual pulse oximeter, which is used by me, an expert anesthesiologist, we are designing this to be used by anybody in their home. So we have developed the software which enables the user to use this in a very intuitive way. I understand it can detect dangerously low oxygen levels in patients with pneumonia and preeclampsia in pregnant women. Take us through that. So many conditions that cause our blood oxygen levels to go low, and obviously the one we all know about is pneumonia because that's the infection of the lungs. But there's many other clinical conditions that also affect the lungs, and one of those, as you mentioned, is preeclampsia, which is high blood pressure in pregnancy. And not all women who have preeclampsia have low oxygen levels, but we know that women who are getting into a severe state of preeclampsia, which can be life-threatening, we know that these women also, this disease affects their lungs and they can have a low oxygen level. So this device is then able to detect these women and get them to care in time so that we can prevent them from having these life-threatening complications. In the same way for children, if a child has a common cold, the oxygen level should be normal. But once this moves on to pneumonia, which is a more severe infection of the lung, we know that the oxygen levels go down. And once again, being able to detect this will enable us to get these children to hospital. You touched base earlier on on its affordability. Expand on that. How affordable and accessible will such a device be for clinics, community workers, and even hospitals in developing countries? That is really the goal of our project. And the reason why we're focused on something that's affordable and low end of cost is that we would like to make this available to everybody everywhere. So we would even hope that this would be available for individuals at home everywhere. That includes in Africa. What about communities in remote areas? Will they also benefit from this technology? Yes, so the reason this has been funded by Grand Challenges Canada, which is an arm of the Canadian government, is that this particular initiative is focused very much at the developing world. So people in low and middle income countries are specifically targeted at this initiative. So this project will reach people in low and middle income countries before it even comes to high income countries. How has it been received by experts in the field so far? What are people saying about it? We do not have a product yet that we can sell, so it's been difficult for us to really measure the opinion of people who aren't familiar with the device. But we have done a number of clinical trials, and these have been done in various places in the world. And I think most people are really excited about the opportunity to have a sensor that's available at an affordable price that they are able to assess their patients with. Finally there, when can we expect it to hit our clinical markets? It's going to be two to three months. That was Dr. Mark Asemino, a researcher at the University of British Columbia in Canada, speaking to Elizabeth Mapari. It's exactly 8.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. And Musa up next with the headlines. Good morning. The state's 10th witness in the murder trial of South African Paralympian Oscar Pistorius will continue with his testimony in the North Gauteng High Court in the 
in the capital, Pretoria, today. Leaders of a United Nations investigation of human rights abuses in the Central African Republic will be looking into reports of genocide. And there's still no trace of the missing Malaysia Airlines plane a day after authorities questioned travel agents about two men who boarded the flight with stolen passports. Those are the headlines. Thank you. And today will most likely be another emotional day for Oscar Pistorius as he is faced with the graphic medical evidence of the gunshot wounds that caused his girlfriend Riva Stienkamp's death. Pistorius became physically ill during forensic pathologist Gert Simon's testimony in the North Gauteng High Court in Pretoria yesterday. Pistorius pleaded not guilty to a charge of murder after he shot and killed Stienkamp in the early hours of Valentine's Day last year. Pistorius alleges he thought Stienkamp was an intruder when he fired four shots through the locked toilet cubicle door. Lila Machnas reports. Forensic pathologist Gert Simon will continue with his testimony today. State prosecutor Gary Nell indicated he will only be questioning Simon for another 10 to 15 minutes before Oscar Pistorius' advocate Barry Rue will start with cross-examination. Before now could lead Simon's evidence yesterday, Simon asked the court to make a ruling not to broadcast the audio and visual images of his testimony live. I think that the very personal nature of findings that are made at an autopsy examination, as well as the very graphic details pertaining to some of the injuries, have the potential to compromise the dignity of the deceased. Judge Tokuzile Masipa ruled that no live coverage of Simon's testimony will be allowed, and that includes Twitter. When Simon started with his testimony, Pistorius pressed his thumbs in his ears to prevent him from hearing. He later was physically ill in a bucket in court, and that continued throughout Simon's evidence. Pistorius rocked himself, cried, reached loudly, and tried to block out the graphic evidence. He was comforted by his sister Amy during the court breaks. Judge Masipa asked whether the court should adjourn, but Ruth told her Pistorius wants to continue. His sister Amy, his brother Carl and an aunt comforted him after the court adjourned and sat with him passing tissues, wet wipes and handkerchiefs before he was composed enough to leave the courtroom. Simon testified that Stienkamp's grey Nike short was saturated with blood and a black sleeveless top had tissue and bone fragments on it. He told the court either the gunshot to the arm or thigh would have caused Stienkamp's death if she was not also shot in the head. The head wound would have immediately incapacitated her. Some of the gunshots had superficial wounds surrounding it that could have been caused by shrapnel of the bullets or more likely splinters. Simon testified the injuries and the bullets they retrieved indicated that the bullets met an obstacle before it hit Stienkamp. Simon testified that the bullet they retrieved from Stienkamp's skull were a hollow-point bullet called Black Talion Ammunition. Criminologist Laurie James explains what that means. It's ammunition designed by Winchester with a specific goal to cause maximum tissue damage. So what this bullet does is as soon as it hits tissue, it flattens. Then it mushrooms out, it splits apart or fragments, and it literally tears up everything in its path. But the path 
is not necessarily in a straight line like with a normal bullet. She says at one point the ammunition was illegal but legalized again. It's dangerous ammunition. It's got high stopping power and maximum tissue damage. Um, so it causes major, major hemorrhaging throughout the body. Forensic pathologist Gerd Simon testified that the bullet to Steenkamp's hip would most likely have caused her to collapse and that the bullet to her head seems as if it came from above. He however clarified that her head is very movable and that the trajectory of the bullet might have come from somewhere else. Rue will cross-examine Simon today and will most likely focus on the fact that Simon testified that Steenkamp ate about two hours before her death while Pistorius put it in his bail application affidavit that they went to bed at 10 that evening. He is also expected to further focus on the secondary injuries caused when the bullet went through the wooden door. Lila Magnus, Pretoria. The testimony in Oscar Pistorius' trial by Professor Gert Simon, who performed the autopsy on River Stenkamp's body, was so graphic that it was not broadcast or reported live on social media by journalists under an order from Judge Togozile Masipa. Our question this morning is, do you think the judge was right by ordering journalists not to broadcast the autopsy report live? Email us on info at channelafrica.org, send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Channel Africa 1. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.37 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta has ordered parastatal chiefs to take a 20% pay cut or quit their jobs. The order comes less than a week after Kenyatta and his deputy... William Ruto announced that they will be taking a 20% cut on their monthly pay. James Shimanyula reports from Nairobi. Speaking at the launch of the national debate on the public wage bill sustainability at the Kenyatta International Conference Center in the capital Nairobi, President Uhuru Kenyatta said him and the Deputy President William Ruto took the decision to have a pay cut as per the year pledge to Kenyans that they will lead by example. Today I say this, all parastatal chiefs will conform to what the executive has done and we expect that they will take an equivalent 20% pay cut. Failure to do so, I assure you, there are many Kenyans willing and ready to take up those jobs at that lower rate. Kenyatta appealed to the stakeholders to soberly debate the wage bill for the sake of the current and the future generations, saying it is prudent to have a non-partisan approach to the issue. Let us think out of the box and let us not presume that the only way we can make ends meet is every single year talking about increasing our salaries. Let's talk about reducing the cost of doing business. Let us talk about investing in more appropriate ways that makes a lot more meaning to our people today and to future generations. That is not a jubilee debate. That is a national debate. 
And that is why we are here to join all Kenyans, regardless of their political beliefs, their religious beliefs. Kenyatta's Deputy William Ruto speaking at the same wage bill forum said Kenyans have to take bold steps and make necessary changes for the good of the country. He said for the nation to achieve its economic agenda, all Kenyans have to make sacrifices and tough choices for the betterment of their future. Ruto said and added, it is said insanity is doing the same thing over and over again while expecting a different result. Kenya's salary and remuneration chairperson Sarah Serem announced that she will voluntarily take a 10% cut of her allowance. She congratulated the president and the cabinet for voluntarily taking a pay cut, noting that leadership goes by example. Your Excellency, allow me to take this opportunity to salute you, the Deputy President, all cabinet secretaries and principal secretaries for voluntarily taking pay cuts. Given the huge size of the wage bill, this is a bold move, indeed on top of being unprecedented. I am pleased to note that the reductions take effect, in fact, immediately. This is indeed leadership by example, as well as exemplary selflessness. I do now hope and pray that may your good spirit flow seamlessly to engulf all arms of government for the good and prosperity of this country. Kenya's devolution planning minister Anne Waiguru said there are various factors which have contributed to the rise of public wage bill, among them employment of 58,700 public servants who include police, nurses and teachers between 2008 and 2012. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Today in 2011, a magnitude 9.0 earthquake and resulting in a tsunami struck Japan's northeastern coast, killing nearly 20,000 people and severely damaging the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power station. Vabakshni Chetty has more. The huge earthquake that hit Japan is now known to have killed more than 400 people, with media reports saying more than 700 are missing. The majority of victims were drowned by giant waves that swept up to 10 kilometers inland on the east coast north of Tokyo. Whole villages were washed away, and Japan's railway operator says four trains have been lost altogether. Chaos. A supermarket shells spill their contents in Tokyo. 250 miles from the epicenter of the earthquake. The tsunami it set off sent a vast wall of water up to 10 metres high, crashing into the country's northeastern coast with devastating effect. The water rolled inland, a roiling, unstoppable surge, dark with debris. Cars and buses were tossed around like toys. It's exactly 8.42 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The 2015 deadline for meeting the Millennium Development Goals MDGs to eradicate extreme poverty and improve people's lives is around the corner. These goals include the provision of universal primary education, promoting gender equality and improving maternal health. And so as the Commission on the Status of Women begins 
It is focusing on challenges and achievements in the implementation of the Millennium Development Goals for Women and Girls. UN Women, the United Nations Entity for Gender Equality, says that progress in meeting the eight goals known as MDGs is uneven, particularly for women. UN Radio's Derek Mbata reports. For the next two weeks, representatives of governments, non-governmental organizations and experts from around the world will address critical issues related to gender equality. The executive director of UN Women, Pumzilem Lambongluka, said there are high expectations from women and girls as the commission begins its session. There are high expectations that the nexus of the end of MDGs, Beijing plus 20, and the looming post-2015 could create a moment in history for a great leap forward. That would change the world for the better and that the lives of girls and women in the world, no matter who they are, no matter where they are, would change forever. So that the investments that keep us here, that bring us here, will enrich their lives. As they look up to us to fight their battles, to win them, the battles against hunger, abuse, landlessness and illiteracy. The chairperson of this year's session of the commission, also known as the CSW, Ambassador Libran Kabaktulan of the Philippines, spoke about the urgency of achieving results for women and girls. The task before this commission is to assess achievements and progress made by women and girls in regard to the Millennium Development Goals and to highlight the gaps and challenges. We need to have frank and open discussion about what worked, where the gaps and challenges are, and why we have not been able to make the progress we have hoped for. Based on this assessment, the Commission must make a decisive contribution to the accelerated achievement of MDGs for women and girls in the remaining time before its completion that is already next year. Also touching on the fast approaching deadline for meeting the MDGs was UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. In that time, we must also define a post-2015 development agenda. I count on your wisdom and commitment to bring the voices of women and girls to the table. I count on you to champion the human rights of all women and girls. You can count on my full support. The Secretary General said there could be no world of dignity for all until gender inequality in all its forms is ended. Derek Mbata, United Nations. Wisani Matebula up next with uh, our economics update. Wisani, we still have people complaining about um, not having electricity in certain areas. Yeah, um, the, there's been load shedding, there's been blackouts in uh, most parts of uh, Johannesburg also. And other areas outside of uh, the Gauteng province, there, there's been uh, load shedding going on. Government saying, through ESCOM, saying that, you know, the some mining companies uh, sold them wet coal and also where they store their coal because of the heavy rains which have been going on in the northern provinces of the country which is uh, Gauteng, Pumalanga and uh, Limpopo and, uh, and northwest province. There's been lots of rains recorded now. Then the, the, the coal has been wet and it can be used to generate electricity because it, you need dry coal. Hmm. Please give us an update. It sounds very depressing but yeah.
Good morning, Kenya. will push ahead with a debut Europe bond, even though market conditions have deteriorated. It's not clear what yield it will have to pay. The East African country plans to borrow up to $2 billion from overseas financial markets. However, it has postponed its investor roadshow, which has been expected to start in January. Finance Minister Henry Rotik says Kenya will set a date for roadshows once it receives clearance from the stock exchange. And Egypt's largest investment bank, EFG Herms, wants to secure 60% of its investment banking revenue from abroad by 2017. Three years of political turmoil have taken away toll on Egypt's economy, deterring foreign investment and tourism. And the world's eight major processed fruit producers are meeting in Stellenbosch in South Africa's Western Cape province. This as demand for processed fruit continues to grow. South Africa has identified the negative impact of agricultural tariffs and subsidies in developed countries as a major issue. South Africa's Trade and Industry Minister Rob Davis. Tariff and, uh, and subsidy matters, uh, which we continue to, to confront in the developed world, is one of the reasons why we have been uh, supporting uh, our uh, industry to look for new markets because we think that uh, many more opportunities lie in uh, new markets around the world. South African Public Enterprises Minister Malusi Gigaba says he's confident that the, the leadership of uh, Power Utility ESCOM is doing all it can to ensure that uh, what happened last week is not repeated. Yesterday, Gigaba and ESCOM CEO Brian Dems visited power stations in Pumalanga province. The minister maintains that uh, part of the problem is that mining houses supplied ESCOM with wet coal. What happened last week would not have happened had the equipment not collapsed because of wet coal which we experienced, which we were supplied by the coal mines. Now, the coal mines must, at this particular moment, particularly when the rains are falling heavily in Pumalanga, they need to ensure that they supply ESCOM with good quality dry and coarse coal, so that our equipment, the conveyor belts, and the, the machinery of ESCOM do not collapse as a result of the wet coal. Financial indicators, the dollar at 10.76, South African rands at 8.79, Botswana Pules and 5.25, Zambian Quaches also at 0.6, British Pound and at 0.72 to the Euro. Commodities, gold $1,334, platinum $1,422, a fine ounce and a brand crude oil at $108.72 per barrel. And that's how it's looking. Kiwisani Msibudi Makura up next with the sports update. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. And starting off with athletics news, interim chairman of Athletics South Africa, Dan Tatoy, says the team they sent to the World Indo Championships in Poland made the country proud despite failing to win a medal in the event. South Africa sent a small team of only six athletes to Poland, but only three of those six athletes made it to the finals of their respective events.
I believe that our team performed very well overall. Taking consideration the restrictions that we've got for indoor competition in South Africa, also that I believe the athletes really gave their best. In the placings, we finished 24 out of 50 countries. Overall, the athletes performed well. We had three athletes in the finals. Some of the athletes didn't make the finals, although their times um, and achievements are applaudable. Detroit says the athletes should be commended considering that South Africa does not have any indoor facilities. We haven't got any indoor facilities basically in South Africa for participation. The athletes must go overseas to have the specific opportunities for indoor competitions. But you know, the indoor championships is also very tactical, you know. But what is very important, our athletes really gave their best. And overall, we're very proud of our athletes. Now to local soccer news, Mpumalanga Black Aces striker Maputi Kanyeza has been suspended for six competitive matches. The ruling by an independent arbitrator brings to an end the long-standing saga involving the player that has dragged on for months. Kanyeza was playing for Ajax Cape Town last season and found guilty of swearing and spitting at a linesman and suspended for 12 months by the Premier Soccer League Disciplinary Committee. But the player successfully appealed his sentence to the South African Football Association and reduced his 12-month ban to an effective 2,000 US dollars. The Prima Soccer League appealed against what they termed a light sentence, resulting in this latest ruling by the arbitrator. Mpumalanga Black Aces chairman Mario Morfu says they are pleased with the outcome and still stand by their player. We are very uh, pleased with, with this outcome. If uh, you remember, remember uh, when we signed Kanyeza, he had uh, a bit of a cloud over his head uh, of a two-year band, I think it was, or a one-year band, whatever it was. And uh, he, he has uh, appealed it. It went to arbitration, and Advocate Motau uh, came up with a ruling which I think is very very favourable. It's a six-match uh, six uh, suspension, 100,000 and uh, uh, suspended fine for this season only. And, you know, the PSL, DC and South Appeals Board will have to pay, I think, the cost of 50-50, if I'm not mistaken, uh, with him. You know, we, we did uh, support him from day one. We were confident that, that uh, the sentence previously was a little bit too high, and nowhere in, in the world of football, you know, did any player get suspended for such a long period for, 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 for the misconduct that he, that he allegedly did. On to cricket news, Proteus all-rounder Albie Morkel says he's hoping his recall to the side is the beginning of new things to come. Morkel says he has never lost hope of returning to the international fold and is looking forward to adding more than just his on-the-field skill to the South African squad. Morkel has been recalled to the team for the ongoing T20 series against Australia and for the upcoming World T20 in Bangladesh. I'm very happy. I think if you asked me a year ago whether I'll sit here in this chair today, no, probably not. Um, you know, after a good domestic season, you know, uh, in South Africa, <clears throat> where things, you know, went well, well for me on a personal note, you know, very happy to be back. Um, you know, looking forward to hopefully make a contribution to the side uh, on and off the field. Well, those are your sports news at the Sawa. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka. Oh, no.
Recapping our top stories in Africa, Raz and Shine at this hour, aid agencies warn of looming humanitarian crisis in South Sudan. UN investigators arrive in the Central African Republic and Kenyan president orders parastatal chiefs to take a 20% pay cut. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagadza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za. Follow us on Twitter at Channel Africa One or send us an SMS to plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Huma Sigela with Tanai.
Good morning and welcome to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. First, let's cross over to the news desk for the latest news from Africa and abroad. In the headlines, forensic pathologist Gert Seyman, Seyman continues with his testimony in the murder trial of South African Paralympian Oscar Pastorius this morning. The search widens for the missing Malaysian plane and UN Chief Ban Ki-moon calls for progress at the United Nations Commission on Women. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musam. The, the state's 10th witness in the murder trial of South African Paralympian Oscar Pastorius will continue with his testimony in the North Gauteng High Court in the capital Pretoria today. Pastorius broke down during forensic pathologist Gert Simon's testimony yesterday. Pastorius has pleaded not guilty to four charges including murder after he shot and killed his girlfriend Rivestien Camp on Valentine's Day last year. Leila Magnus reports. Forensic pathologist Gert Simon will be cross-examined by Pistorius' advocate Barry Rue for most of today. Simon testified that Steenkamp had three gunshot wounds to her body and that either of the wounds would have caused her death. He described in graphic detail the wound to Steenkamp's head as well as her hip and arm. Simon told the court the bullet that they retrieved from Steenkamp's skull was designed to cause major tissue damage. The trial continues. Leaders of a United Nations investigation of human rights abuses in the Central African Republic will be looking into reports of genocide. The chair of the investigation, Bernard Munoz, says is concerned that hate propaganda used by both Christians and Muslims in the conflict will fuel more violence. Violence continues unabated as mostly Christian vigilantes take revenge. Mona says hate propaganda on the ground is reminiscent of his time working in Rwanda, where a 1994 genocide left an estimated 800,000 people dead. There's still no trace of the missing Malaysia Airlines plane a day after authorities questioned travel agents about two men who boarded the flight with stolen passports. Three days after the plane with 239 people on board vanished from radar screens between Malaysia and Vietnam, the search effort by at least 34 aircraft and 40 ships has been widened to a 185-kilometer radius from the point the plane was last detected. As South Africa celebrates 20 years of freedom, President Jacob Zuma is expected to release a report on how the country has progressed in realizing the objectives of reconstruction and development since 1994. The 20-year review document will also reflect on challenges still facing the country and how government could address them. This as the country enters the third decade of freedom and democracy. Ntebo Mukobo reports. After years of minority rule, government says South Africa is a much better place to live in now than it was before 1994. It says over the past two decades, South Africans have managed to put an end to apartheid, established a thriving constitutional democracy, and laid a firm foundation for progress towards inclusive growth and prosperity. 
but it has admitted that more still needs to be done, as some communities are still waiting to experience change with inequality still rife and the indignity of the bucket toilet system still a common feature in some communities. Today, President Zuma will release government's progress report and how to address some of the challenges of the past 20 years of democracy. UN Chief Ban Ki-moon has called for progress at the United Nations Commission on Women. Ban was speaking at the opening of the Commission's conference yesterday. He says there is still much progress to be made to advance women's rights despite recent strides. Last year, the Commission adopted a landmark declaration denouncing violence against women, establishing a code of conduct to fight it despite the reluctance of countries such as Iran, Libya, Sudan, Russia and the Vatican. The Commission brings together officials from the UN's 193 member states and several thousand representatives from non-government groups. Recapping the top stories, forensic pathologist Ger Seyman continues with his testimony in the murder trial of South African Paralympian Oscar Pistorius this morning. The search widens for the missing Malaysian plane and UN Chief Ban Ki-moon calls for progress at the United Nations Commission on Women. The Morning Book Reading. Here's another episode of The Nelson Mandela Story by Anne-Marie Dupria Bezdrob. The reader is Lindanian Corsi. In Vernon Beringer's introduction, at the beginning of the preparatory examination, he undercut the real reason for the tortuous trial. We will endeavor to show that these prosecutions, to ascertain how far the originators thereof can go in their endeavors to stifle free speech, criticism of the government, and in fact, all that the accused believe is implicit in their definition of the oft-misused word democracy. As the months dragged by, it became little but a dreary drawn-out third-rate circus and a waste of taxpayers' money. The drill hall was a large, drafty space with raw red brick walls and barred windows that for some reason had been painted green. Every sound echoed loudly between the bare walls, the ceilingless corrugated iron roof and the dry wooden floor. In front of the stage was a row of tables for the legal teams and rows of straight-backed wooden chairs for the accused. Once they were ushered into the hall, any semblance of order broke down and chaos reigned. They called out greetings and carried on shouted conversations with family and friends, some of whom rushed to greet them. Members of the press darted into the fray, shouting questions and receiving shouted quotes and information from banned political leaders, which they would publish as coming from unidentified sources. Rusty Bernstein later wrote, The greetings and introductions made the scene look and sound more like a club reunion than a court of law. The air is one of excitement and anticipation rather than dread. The police had their hands full trying to restore order. The accused, when they were ready, nonchalantly took their seats as though they were attending a concert performance. The magistrate, seated on the stage, solemnly started reading out the charge of high treason, which was based on a nationwide conspiracy to overthrow the government. In support of the charge, he cited the Defiance Campaign, the Congress of the People and the Freedom Charter, as well as protests against the removal of people 
from Sophia Town. All the defendants pleaded not guilty and were returned to the fort. The next day, proceedings began in earnest. Again, large crowds thronged the drill hall, and in the cacophony it was impossible for the defendants to hear their legal representatives. The magistrate, to his embarrassment, had to adjourn the court so that a microphone could be installed. Following the controversial arrests, the country and the outside world had immediately sprung into action, propelled by an outpouring of dramatic media reports. Within days, people had established the Stand by Our Leaders movement and a treason trial defense fund spearheaded by Bishop Reeves, member of the parliament Alex Heppel, and author Alan Payton. The latter two, the respective leaders of the Labour Party and Liberal Party. International support soon followed through the defense fund set up by Canon John Collins and the Christian Action Group of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, who raised money to cover the enormous cost of defending 156 people and supporting their families. Donations immediately started streaming in. The cream of South Africa's legal fraternity assembled to defend the accused, headed by Bram Fisher, Easy Maisels, Vernon Beranger, Norman Rosenberg, Maurice Franks, and George Bezos. When the defendants next arrived at the drill hall, they were shocked. The microphone had been installed, but overnight the police had erected a massive 10-foot-high wire cage and placed 156 chairs for the accused inside. The cage had a gate guarded by a policeman. The temptation had proved impossible to resist and someone had already hooked a sign to the side. Dangerous, do not feed. The defendants were informed that they had been divided into provinces, ironically not by race, and the seats for each province were alphabetically arranged. As a result of this design, a young, unknown member of the Indian Congress was catapulted to immediate, if momentary, fame when the case was formally named State versus Farid Adams and others. The defendants, as if by silent agreement, were doing their utmost to frustrate the proceedings. Court orderlies struggled vainly to get them to their designated places, while they ushered people to seats at one end those who already had their seats became bored and started wandering around, talking to friends in other rows. In no time, there was complete chaos, and the defendants, enjoying the opportunity to add to the disorder, started milling around in a malicious game of musical chairs as some kind of protest. When everybody was finally seated and the magistrate ready to open proceedings, the defense lawyers protested about the cage and issued an ultimatum informing him that they refused to continue while their clients were caged like wild animals. Furthermore, it was impossible to consult with the accused. They demanded that the cage be removed and thus, once again, the court had to be adjourned. After deliberating with the defense team, the magistrate agreed that the cage would be removed overnight. Meanwhile, a compromise was reached that would allow proceedings to continue. The gate to the cage was left open and the top layer of wire was pulled down so that they could peer over the sides. Finally, the case could begin. The chief prosecutor began presenting the seemingly endless introduction of his case in a dreary monotone. 
his outline alone took two days. As the early morning chill in the drill hall made way for the midday heat beating down on the iron roof, many of the accused dozed off, lulled by the prosecutor's droning voice. On one occasion the police suddenly scuttled in and out of the hall with an apparent sense of urgency. The next minute rifle fire echoed loudly across the compound. In an instant everyone was wide awake and on their feet. In the hall and outside there was pandemonium as people screamed and scattered. The magistrate adjourned the court and went out to investigate, ordering the accused be locked inside the cage. Members of the defense team returned and told the defendants that a young policeman had panicked when the crowd outside became rowdy and had started shooting. Twenty-two people were wounded, but fortunately nobody was killed. Finally, after days of detached and meaningless mumbling, the prosecutor cited the state's justification for charging the accused with treason. They were all members of organizations opposing the state. The Congress of the People and the Freedom Charter were instruments through which the liberation movement aimed to establish a communist state after violently overthrowing the government with the assistance of foreign armed forces. After this triumphant declaration, the state adjourned the case for Christmas. In anticipation of the recess, the defense lawyers had submitted bail applications to the Supreme Court for all of the accused. It was an unprecedented application. The courts had rarely, if ever, granted bail on such serious charges. Surprisingly, the application succeeded, and the bail applications were hurriedly processed. Enthusiastic supporters of the International Defense Fund footed the bill for the bail, which in yet another surprising turn was not set commensurate with the gravity of the charges, but at the lowest possible level, more suited to a traffic offense. With typical apartheid logic, bail for whites was set at £250 each, that of the Indians at £100 while blacks and coloreds were released for £50 each, thus reflecting the perverse totem pole structure of South African society that ranked people's value according to their skin color. Another small miracle